let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, as we begin our season of Lent, help us to understand who you are and what you are asking of us. Help us to see as adults that it is not the giving up of things, but more the doing of things that we don't normally do. Help us to really see that you are the God of love, the God that is giving us so much, and that we must show our love and our appreciation in return. So give us the strength of the grace ready to do what it is that you want us to do rather than what we think you want us to do. We ask your blessing on our efforts today. We give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. A couple things before we get into our class. Today being the beginning of Lent, As children, we were always taught by the good nuns uh, about giving up things. And that was all right, because that was easy to understand. But as adults, the church is trying to get us to see that it is far more important that we do something in a positive way. Now, that might include giving up something, but... Using, for example, giving up uh, television, which is kind of worthless in the beginning, uh, anyways, uh, and using that time to do something that is positive, not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. So it is important that we do a positive thing and have an, <clears throat> an objective of why we are doing it and what is the goal at the end of the, the stream, whatever, whether it be uh, Easter or any other time period. But then let it be something that we might want to carry on afterward. So, rather than belabor the point, keep the idea of being positive in your mind. Okay. Today we are going to discuss chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8 is... Uh, Rather interesting, it's a uh, group of short stories or teachings. And if we keep in mind the idea that this whole gospel is slanted towards who God is, and that God is a God of love and compassion and understanding, understanding of our weaknesses, uh, and that he wants us to understand who he, who he is. So help us then to open our minds and our hearts so that we really get to see who God is through these stories today. Now, the first story is on the woman caught in adultery. The booklet that you have mentions that it is not in all of the books of uh, the Bible, all right? And it is not 
in some of the old manuscripts. Let me give you a little example, which is something that most people don't think about. The Bible as we have it today, particularly the New Testament, was not put together until the 4th century by St. Jerome. And that's when it was translated from the Greek, the Aramaic, and the Hebrew into Latin. Now, if you stop and think about it, between the time of Christ, say the time of St. Paul, who wrote many of the letters, 13 to be exact, there were a number of manuscripts written, that is, copies of the original. We have no extant copies of the original writings, but we have many of those that were made shortly afterwards from the originals. But they were, there were many uh, copies floating around, you might say, and I don't mean that as it sounds, but there were many copies made over a period of time. St. Jerome was given the task by Pope Damascene, as I said in the latter part of the 4th century, to bring together uh, those that were deemed to be inspired by Christ, or God the Father, or the Holy Spirit, and bring them together in a booklet as we have it today. The Old Testament was brought together uh, about the second century B.C., but the New Testament was not brought together in the form that we have it today until the fourth century. So, St. Jerome had to sort of pick and choose as to what was to go into the Bible and what stories were to be included. And to what uh, what manuscripts should he collect and include as the original or that which is intended. The manuscripts that do not have the story of woman caught in adultery was probably left out rather than uh, not included or brought into this one uh, from outer space or something, you know. So, one of the criteria that he used was that all of the writings had to be written prior to the death of the last apostle, which was John. They had to be from the first century. That doesn't mean that there weren't writings after the first century that weren't acceptable. But somewhere along the line, he had to make a decision. And so the decision was the end of the first century and those written under the guidance of the apostles. That's where we get the word apostolic from. All right, One holy, Catholic, and apostolic, the four marks of the Catholic Church. It means that it was through the guidance of the twelve apostles. And St. Paul, of course. All right. So, that 
kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of why this particular story may not have been included in some of the other manuscripts. All right? Saying, I mean, uh, Saint Jerome was advised or inspired by the Holy Spirit to select this particular version of John's Gospel that did include it. That doesn't mean that uh, the other manuscripts weren't correct as far as they weren't. Does that kind of give you some idea, a little bit of background on uh, how the Bible was put together? It's kind of important that we remember that there were a lot of writings uh, over a period of time in the first three or four centuries, but because of persecutions and other hardships, uh, they were always sort of kept under cover. But after the Edict of Milan in 313 uh, AD by Emperor Constantine, uh, people were allowed to, and not only allowed to, but encouraged to practice their faith openly. And that made a big difference. And that is when a lot of these manuscripts came out of, out of under the cover, so to speak. Okay. Steve, you had a question? Or a Not in Catholic Bibles. Oh, oh well, now the Jesuits. <laughs> All right, but go ahead. Well, we don't. That's why I question that. Well, apocrypha means, it's a Greek word, that it means over and above or extra. And in many Protestant Bibles, you will have the six books that are not included in the Old Testament. Uh, and that is the difference between that which was written uh, in the second century B.C. Uh, in Greek versus that which was written prior to that in Hebrew or Aramaic. They, the Protestant Bible differs uh, from the Catholic Bible by those six books, uh, and that difference was made at the time of the Reformation when Martin Luther's followers decided to do away with a lot of Catholic things, and that was one of the things that they did away with, they went back to the Hebrew Bible, which did not include those six. So many of the Protestant Bibles now recognize that there are some very good teachings in those six books, and so they include that as part of the Apocrypha. I have never seen... Now, I'm not saying there isn't, but I've never seen a Catholic Bible separate other books and call them apocrypha. Okay. 
So, uh, you know, I'm at a loss to explain your comment. I have no problem saying I don't know. I don't do it very often, though. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, the New American Revised Version uh, is the one that is preferred and the one that we use in uh, our liturgies today. It is uh, sort of uh, an advanced uh, of the St. Joseph Version. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the one I have up here is the St. Joseph Version, which is older than I am, almost. Not quite. Okay. Uh, any other questions before we get in? What I'd like to do is talk about chapter 8. You all have heard the story about the woman caught in adultery. And let's bring it up before you even ask it. This is not Mary Magdalene. Okay? <laughs> Poor Mary Magdalene has been uh, marked with the marked with the uh, cross, you might say, of being a uh, prostitute. And there is nothing, nothing in any of our Bibles uh, or Apocrypha uh, that says that she was. It just so happens in one of the other Gospels, the story of this woman caught in adultery comes right after a discussion of where Mary Magdalene was uh, relieved of seven demons uh, by Christ. Okay? Now, uh, in that particular culture and time period, virtually any uh, problem, physical or mental or spiritual, was considered a demon. So we don't know what those seven demons were. Okay? Could be the seven-year itch. Who knows? You know. So, I just wanted to bring it up uh, that this is not in reference to Mary Magdalene. And no, Mary Magdalene and Jesus did not get married for Dan Brown. Okay. We all know this story. I don't know if anyone really wants me to, to read it again, and I would rather not. But it's a simple story, and it's un a little bit unusual for this particular gospel because it is not followed by a long teaching. It is a teaching in itself. The woman is caught. She is brought before Jesus not because of what she did. That is not important in the eyes of the, the crowd uh, of men who brought her. But they were trying to test Jesus because if he said Yes, stoner, because that is what Moses uh, dictated. Then they, he would be going against his own uh, teachings of love. If he didn't, if he said no, that she should not be stoned, then she, he would be going against the, the laws, so forth. So he uses what I think is probably the greatest psychological way of answering. 
he bends down and starts writing. We have no idea of what he is writing. But he says to the men, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I think that is probably the greatest psychological comment that is made in the Bible. Because it puts the burden back on the individual, the accuser. Unfortunately, the man that was the accomplice of the woman is not brought into the story at all. And it could be one of the men in the crowd. We don't know. What I often think of, what God or what Christ is writing in the sand or whatever, is probably something that reminds each one of those men of their own sins. And of course, not wanting to be laughed at because all of these men knew each other. So if anyone was the first guy to throw the stone, you know, they would all say, oh, yeah, look at so-and-so, you know. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, in the way this is handled. But I think it's a beautiful story. Now, what does it teach us about God? About Christ? Remember, he didn't condone the woman, obviously. But he didn't condemn her either. She was punished enough just by the embarrassment of being caught and brought before a group of of men who were out together. But Jesus offers compassion and advises her to sin no more. Do not get caught in this situation again because under any circumstances it's wrong. And she knew that. There was no point in giving her a lecture. But that is the end of the story. But I think there is a great deal involved in that for us to think about. How often are we critical without, or judgmental, worse, which I think is worse than being critical, judgmental without knowing all the facts? Think about that in itself. How impatient we are often. And how lacking in compassion are we. These are things that I think should be brought out in our own, you might say, spiritual inventory for Lent. Spiritual inventory. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about that or heard of it. But it's a self-examination of your own spirituality and relationship to God. Where do you stand? What do you feel is your level of holiness or lack of holiness? This is a time period to really give that some serious thought. Where are you in your relationship with God? And what do you feel that you need to do? And don't think about a lot of things that you need to do. Think of one or two things that you can start working on in improving your relationship with Christ. Because that's what Lent is all about. This idea of giving up things was all right for children. 
unless you want to give up, as I said, uh, a lot of time on television, or I have to admit I'm very guilty uh, because I don't watch a lot of television. I do a lot of <coughs> games on, t- on TV, <laughs> on my computer, solitaire. Oh. <laughs> so you see, guilty, yes, sorry, I am, Lord. I spend too much time on that, uh, and I should give up that. And last year I did. I actually took it off the computer. I have it on a little disc, you know. <laughs> I took it off of the computer. I'll tell you, I really struggled. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, it was a punishment, you might say. But I, I offered it up. Okay. Let, let's go on. Again, these are short stories or short teachings, which I think we have to stop after each one and ask, what is it really telling us? Jesus spoke to them again saying, I, you see, this doesn't follow the exact point of the story of the woman caught in adultery. Okay. It is a different teaching altogether. And that is the makeup of this gospel. It is not something that chronologically flows from one episode to another. It says, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now he's talking, of course, spiritual light and spiritual life. So the Pharisees said to him, you testify on your own behalf, so your testimony cannot be verified. Remember, in Jewish law, it always had to be two or more witnesses to verify an accusation or a rule or an agreement or whatever, whatever, excuse me. So Jesus answered them and said, Even if I do testify on my own behalf, my testimony can be verified because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by appearances, but I do not judge anyone. Important statement. I do not judge anyone. I look at the entire person. Okay. And even if I should judge, my judgment is valid because I am, again, I am, not alone. But it is I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two men can be verified. I testify on my behalf, and so does the Father who sent me. So they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the treasury in the temple area. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, what do we get out of all of that? Remember, 
after the baptism, the sky opens up and uh, this is after Jesus comes up out of the water and the father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All right. So there is verification here. But these people are so closed minded. And I, as I said in your handout from last week, there is nobody so blind as one who refuses to see. And one of the points here is that in spite of Jesus being just sort of an itinerant preacher, itinerant preacher, somebody who was not part of the ruling crowd or the temple, they should have spent a little more time in listening to him and comparing it with those comments and prophecies made by the prophets and many of the people that came before them. But they didn't. They had their own agenda. And they were closed-minded to anything that didn't fit that agenda. And what Jesus is saying here is that they had made no attempt to develop a relationship with the Father, even though the Father had carried them and helped them and brought them along and fed them and provided things for them for 2,000 years. But they wanted nothing to do with that. If we go back to the uh, reading that I did in the book of Exodus, chapter 18, where God appeared to Moses on top of the mountain with flames of fire and smoke and clouds, lightning and all of that. Uh, when he came down from the mountain, and of course he went up and down two or three times, he needed an escalator really. Because yeah. he was an old guy at the time. They wanted nothing to do with that up there. You know, they said, you be our mediator. You go for us to God and tell us what he said, but you know, we don't want to touch any of that up there. And unfortunately, that followed through for 2,000 years. Uh, they didn't want to get too close to God because they were afraid of him. And that culture kind of shows throughout the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus is trying to get the people to see that God is a God of love and compassion and understanding. Not that he's going to accept sinful or wayward people, but he's not going to condemn them right from the beginning either. When God, when we stand before God in the, you know, at the pearly gates waiting to get, uh, our sentence, you might say, of heaven, hell, or in between, God is going to weigh all of what we did. But what is most important is our spiritual attitude at the end of life. Because he tells us in one of the Gospels, I believe it's Luke, that if a person, a wayward person, turns away from his sin, and becomes good and accepts the goodness 
of God. Then when he stands before God, he will be looked at as a friend. And some of his wayward uh, situations or sins or whatever will be overlooked. But if a good person turns to sin and shows up before God, that person will looked upon, be looked upon more severely. So our attitude towards the end of life must be one of asking for forgiveness and modifying our life to fit what God wants of us. But the whole idea of this gospel is that Jesus and God, because Jesus is the face of God, is a God of love and a God of compassion and understanding. And that was shown in the story of the woman caught in adultery. He didn't condone what she did, but he didn't condemn her either because she had time to make up for her sins. And that is what he's asking of all of us. Jesus, the Father's ambassador, he said to them again, I am going away and you will look for me, but you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, he's not going to kill himself, is he? Because he said, where I am going, you cannot come. See, they're constantly looking at things only from a physical uh, point of view. He said to them, you belong to what is above. Uh, below, I'm sorry. Getting ahead of myself. I belong to what is above. You belong to this world. But I do not belong to this world. And that is why I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, in other words, that I am God, yes, many times, many times. And that was something, and he does it deliberately. Because those people would never say that. That was such a sacred word or phrase. To them it was one word, Yahweh. That they would not say that because it is such a holy word. Even today when you read some Jewish uh, writings, they will not spell out in the writings the word God. If that's what they mean, they'll write G-D. I was just reading something the other day that had that in there. And uh, it looks a little odd because that's sort of skirting the issue, isn't it? Yeah, but that's the way they do it. Okay. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sin. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what I told you from the beginning. In other words, what I told you from the beginning. I've told you over and over and over. I have much to say about you 
in condemnation. But the one who sent me is true. And what I heard from him I tell you. They did not realize that he was speaking to them of the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am. And that I do nothing on my own. But I say only what the Father taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He, he has not left me alone because I always do what is pleasing to him. Because he spoke this way, many came to believe in him. And this goes back to what I've said before, that whatever Jesus does, whatever he says, it includes the Father and the Holy Spirit, because there's only one God. Jesus happens to be the face of God to mankind, the human face. But the Father and the Son is always there at the same time because you cannot separate them. Their mind and their heart always work in unison. You can never have a situation where Jesus would say something and the Father would say, oh, I don't agree with that. Uh-huh. Or the Holy Spirit says, well, I'd do it differently. No. They all work in unison because there is only one God. Jesus happens to be the face of God. And that's what we see and that's what we have to listen to. Jesus said, (sighs) then said to those Jews who believed in him. Now remember, those Jews, this was written towards the end of the first century, long after a lot of persecution long after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and so forth and so on and the division or the separation of Christianity from Judaism had become pretty much fixed. Jesus then said to those Jews who believed in him, this is a small group who did believe in him, If you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Of course, he's speaking in a spiritual sense. They're looking at it. Solely in a physical sense. Okay. Jesus answered them. Amen, amen, I say to you. Anyone who commits sin. Is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in a household forever. But a son always remains. And so if a son frees you. Then you will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no room among you. I tell you what I have seen in the Father's presence. Then do what you have heard from the Father. You know, something tells me that there is a little error here. Because it says, 
Jesus says to those Jews who believed in him. So these are not the enemy. But on the next page, without changing, you know, uh, says, you are trying to kill me because my word has no room among you. I tell you what I have seen in the Father's presence. Then do what you have heard from the Father. There's a little problem there. Okay. Um, but we'll have to go on because I have no way of, of, of fixing that or answering that. They answered and said to him, Our father is Abraham. And Jesus said to them, You see, the argument here is, the Jews put all of the Jews at this time period and for, for centuries before, put a great deal of emphasis on not only on the fact that Abraham was their father or the beginning of the Jewish nation, but they also put their um, put a lot of importance on what tribe they belonged to, even the, the 12 tribes of Jacob. Uh, did you know that it was the Jewish people in the Old Testament that actually started the art of genealogy? And it became a very important thing to them up to the time of the Babylonian uh, captivity. Uh, because the records were kept in the temple of what family belonged to what tribe. And you could not, at one point in time, you could not uh, marry outside of your own tribe. And you could not live outside of the territory given uh, to each of the tribes after they came into the promised land. So genealogy was extremely important. But because of the destruction of the northern kingdom in the 8th century and the destruction of the uh, southern kingdom in the 6th century and the Babylonian captivity when the temple was destroyed, although the records were destroyed. So genealogy became less important because it couldn't go back very far. Um, and that's what is part of the problem when you look at the genealogy of Christ in, gospel, in Matthew's Gospel versus the genealogy of Christ in Luke's Gospel. They are not quite the same. In Matthew's Gospel, at the end of uh, chapter 1, it talks about 14 generations from Abraham to King David, and 14 generations from David to the Babylonian captivity, and 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to Christ. Uh, there is a couple errors there. One in the fact that if you put a figure to what a generation is, and multiplied it by 14, you would get some, you would get a single figure, would you not? Okay, for example, 14 times 40 is 560. Well, it was a thousand years between Abraham and David. Uh, it was 500 years between David 
and the Babylonian captivity are a little less than 500 years and a little more than 500 years from the Babylonian captivity to Christ. So 14 did not fit each of those three time periods. But he's not really making a point, and this is Matthew's gospel, of course, he's not making a point of time. He's making a point of what happened during those time periods. Okay. Uh, and I think he really meant Moses rather than Abraham, but it came out Abraham anyways. All right. <laughs> I think we've uh, sort of belabored this point. He goes on uh, here, Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. Now, this statement, of course, goes along with whoever believes in me will never see death, what he said before. The fact is that belief, or in this word, in this phrase, keeping his word, implies more than just the words itself. we got to be careful and not look at things in the way we do uh, today at the same words. In this case, it implies that we not only accept the teachings, but live according to them. That's important that you understand that. Belief in itself is insufficient. Belief in the biblical sense implies that you take all of what Christ has taught and follow through with your life and your speech and all of your actions because belief again is insufficient you can believe and not do anything about it and that only makes the situation worse would you say to him now we are sure that you are possessed Abraham died as did the prophets and yet you say, whoever keeps my word will never taste death again. We're looking at only physical death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Yes. Who died? Or the prophets who died? Yes. Who, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is worth nothing. But it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. You do not know Him, but I know Him. And if I should say that I do not know Him, I would be like you, a liar. Wow, that's pretty tough words in those days. Today, eh. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Abraham, your father, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jew said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Before Abraham came to be, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid and went out of the temple area. I don't like that word, hid. It sounds like, you know, hide and seek. Well, he probably just vanished. Which, of course, he was capable of doing. 
being that he was God. Sounds better anyways, doesn't it? Yeah. But this whole idea of I am is really his way of saying the Father and I are one. I am God. I've come here to teach you the way back to the Father. Any questions? I think chapter 8 really to me is an interesting and very encouraging chapter because we are all sinners in a way. Some more or less, you know. In a way. And yet God does not just openly condemn us. He warns us, but he gives us opportunities. He's compassionate in saying, I understand, but you've got to do better here and there. What bothers me when I go to a confession, I remember not too long ago, uh, I went to confession, I didn't have any, any great sins, and I said, Father, I don't have any great sins, but I recognize that I have a lot of faults. And it was, he, you know, he gave me this impression, well, well then why did you come and bother me? <laughs> he doesn't realize that this is a, the, this is a sacrament. This is a sacrament that provides grace to help you sin no more. And so I encourage all of you to make your confession during this time period. And that's not saying that you are admitting that you're a great sinner. Well, that doesn't help. But the idea is that you gain graces to help you sin no more. Or avoid the sins, particularly if you're telling the same sins over and over and over, which we often do. I love to hear priests talk about little children and their first com- uh, confession, just before receiving First Communion. Said it's really interesting because most of those kids come in and they make things up because they don't know what to say. You know? <laughs> uh, and they're really something... Yes, Howard? No, there are indications earlier, but not quite as explicit as this. This is the first time where it's right up there in front, and he means what he says. Well, I wouldn't go as far as that, Howard's statement, if we believe but don't do anything about it, or refuse to believe, really is what 
I think you're talking about. Refusing to believe are always, is the devil our father. Well, in a sense, yes. In a sense, yes. Because, as I've said before, there is no one so blind as he who refuses to see. And there's no one so mistaken as one who refuses to believe and then work through that as to what does it mean. What does it mean for you as an individual? Um, I don't know how to say it any, any clearer. Well, you're with me or you're against me. That's right. But that doesn't mean that you can't come back. There's always hope. Yes, right up to the last minute. Some people talk about uh, deathbed conversions. Well, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But those are, if they're sincere, if they're sincere, and they're truly sorry for the sins that they've committed over their life, then a deathbed confession and conversion is valid. Don't feel that uh, those person, that person doesn't deserve it. It took a lot of courage to change. A lot of courage to admit that they were wrong and were sinful over their life time. Let's, let's move on. The man born blind. Now here's just the opposite. A long story with a lot of teaching within it. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? <laughs> By way of explanation, the culture, the Jewish culture of the time, felt that anyone who had any misfortune, uh, a speech impediment, a physical defect, uh, a sickness, serious illness, or just was poor because of lack of education or lack of opportunities, his being poor, his being afflicted in any way, uh, or having problems of any kind, was due to sin, and he was automatically uh, classified as a sinner. Jesus tried to change that. Get them to say, see that their spiritual health in no way reflects through their physical health or well-being. And you've got to think of them separately. Okay. And Jesus says, after the question of whether it was the individual's sins or the parent's sins, because he was born blind, from birth. Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents sin. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. 
Night is coming when no one can work. All right, now, he's not using this day and night to mean, you know, <laughs> during uh, 6 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock in the evening or whatever. And then it's night after that. He's not talking about daylight saving time or whatever. He's, t- <laughs> he's talking about opportunity in this case. Let me give you a little story, a side story. I had dinner with Father Lawrence here, the black priest from Kenya, not too long ago. And he was telling us of some of his experiences because he had never been to the United States before or to any northern country. And, of course, Kenya is on the equator where night and day are exactly the same amount of time or year-round. So he has never experienced, you know, being daylight at 9.30 in the evening in the summertime or uh, nighttime starting at 4.30 in the afternoon in the winter. He's never experienced that. And he's kind of waiting, you might say, because he just arrived. He's kind of waiting until that time period, you know. And he was telling us about a few other uh, things that, uh, for example, he... He had a countryman of his pick him up at the airport and take him up to Susanville where he sort of got indoctrinated for a couple of weeks. And this person, when he was driving through town, stopped in the middle of the road. And then he would go another few blocks and he'd stop in the middle of the road when there was nobody there. (laughs) And finally, this got to be too much for Father Lawrence. And he said, why are you stopping in the middle of the road when there's nobody here? (laughs) <laughs> the other priest says, see the stop sign over there? You know, that means we stop. And Father said, oh, I thought that was for the people. <laughs> so it was very, very interesting in somebody who had been never been to our part of the world before in the many changes and things that he was experiencing. He's a very well-educated man. Uh, but he just never had the opportunity, you know, to experience a lot of these things. Let's go on. Neither his nor his parents sin. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who set thee while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva and smeared it in the clay of of the blind man's eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, able to see. His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit uh, and beg? And some said it is. But others said, no, he just looks like him. He said, I am. Now, of course, this is the blind man that says, I am. So they said to him, so, how were your eyes opened? He replied, the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went there and washed and was able to see. 
And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So they brought him to the one who was, they brought the one who was blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. And this is the problem. Okay. The whole idea is he did a work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed. Now I can see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, again, solely looking at the law. Not looking at the compassion uh, or looking with compassion at the man born blind and the good fortune of the fact that he can now see. All they're doing is looking at Christ who did a work work on the Sabbath. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinful man do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? And the blind man says, he is a prophet. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. They asked him, is this your son? Who do you say, who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents answered and says, we know that he is our son and that he was born blind. We do not uh, know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. Hmm, gutsy parents there. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. But the Jews had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him as the Messiah, he would be expelled from the synagogue. See how their mind are, their mind is so closed. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, question him. So a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, If he, meaning Jesus, is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Hey, hey, I like this guy. (laughs) They ridiculed him and said, You are the man's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Yeah. We know that God spoke to Moses. But we do not know where this one is from. See, the word, just the words there alone. We do not, uh, we know that God spoke to Moses. But you see, that implies that they have no relationship with God. 
their relationship was with was with Moses, and Moses died fifteen hundred years before this time. So all that time period is kind of wasted in a way as far as developing a relationship with God. How sad. This man answered and said, This is what is so amazing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is devout and does his will, he listens to him. It is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. And they answered and said to him, You were totally, you were born totally in sin, and you are trying to teach us? Us? You see the pride involved in that? This guy being born blind was automatically classified as a great sinner because he had a great affliction. And they, the Pharisees, the ones who were educated and should have known better, should have remembered what the prophets had talked about in the past, because these kinds of things were done by various people in the past. So this is nothing new. But they refused because it did not fit their agenda. So they didn't like what this blind man said now, so they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, I do believe, Lord. And he worshipped him. And then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not uh, see might see, and those who do not, who do see, might become blind. Again, because they refused to open their mind and their heart. Some of the Pharisees, who were with him, heard this and said to him, Surely we are not also blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you are saying, We see. So your sin remains, because you refuse to really see. The whole idea here is Jesus is trying to change the minds and the hearts of these people who are wrong to begin with and refuse to open their mind and their heart. But that is what we are all being asked to do. How many of us have prejudice or little Hang-ups, you might say, that we are, uh, we almost cherish 
and don't want to give up. Those are the kinds of things that we should look at during Lent to see, is this really what God wants of us? And I think that all of this needs to be taken into prayer. And what better time than Lent to do a little extra praying? Uh, I surely recommend that each of you have some kind of daily devotional. There are so many out there. The popular one is the Word Among Us, or the Magnificat, or Jesus Calling. Um, these are all daily devotionals that uh, specifically address situations uh, at this time period of Lent to help us improve our personal life, uh, our relationship with Christ. And that is really what it's all about. Lent is not a time of punishment. Okay. We may think so when we're supposed to fast. Remember, today is a, fa- a day of fast and abstinence. No meat. Okay. No hamburgers on your way home from lunch, you know, or whatever. Uh, no meat today or on Fridays of Lent and particularly on Good Friday. Uh, fasting, well, most of us uh, are sort of over that age bracket, but not everyone. Uh, so we don't have to do too much fasting. But it certainly doesn't help, hurt, if we uh, give up something. Okay. Yes, sir, you had a question? Ernie? I, uh, you have to speak louder. Yeah. Right. That's right. Thank you. That's the whole idea. The one was physically blind and has now opened his mind and heart and has been relieved. The others who were not physically blind are spiritually blind and remain that way because they refuse to open their mind. Yeah. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Any questions about Lent? Goodness, you got 15 minutes here. I can't let you go too early. Oh. We'll have to double up on our uh, number of chapters that we're covering. All right. No other questions. Yes. But it's back on John, the one that we always see people with signs, John 3.15. Uh-huh. When it says that God so loved the world, when it says the world, the people, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the question, the question was on John chapter three sixteen, which is very popular and probably is uh, something that sums up the entire gospel. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that we might have life. He's talking about spiritual life not physical life. 
All right. And that is very important. Uh, the question was, what does the world mean? And what he's really referring to is all the people. Remember, the Jewish people were very exclusive and only referred to themselves, uh, the Jewish community. Uh, also, you have to kind of imagine Israel at the time of Christ because the Jewish people surrounding Jerusalem, the temple, and that area were very orthodox because of the Pharisees. But as they spread out north and south, uh, Judaism became a little bit uh, more tolerant, you might say, because there were a lot of other nationalities, particularly in the north. Remember the Silk Road that went all the way from China across to the Mediterranean, went right through the northern part of Israel at the time. And so you had a number of other nations up in that area. And of course, as we've always said, the role of the Jewish people was always to be a light to the nations. They never did that. They were always very exclusive and would not associate, unless they absolutely had to, with any other nationality. We talked about the Samaritans here in the past. Uh, so in this particular case, when John is writing in here, chapter 3, uh, verse 16, God so loved the world, he's talking about everybody that his love, his compassion, his understanding is not just for one specific nationality of the Jews or anyone else. It is meant for everybody. God is the God of all mankind. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, even in Australia. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, Ed Walls. Uh, Matthew Kelly. <laughs> Ed Walsh has the, uh, happens to be the gentleman that gave me the first copy. Oh, okay. Well, that is well. The, um, uh, I signed up for, he has some special Matthew program. He, he has everything you could possibly think of, but go ahead. Well, I wondered, do you know about that? Somehow a, a friend of mine was reading the book and she sent me Listed for this for Lent, but I haven't opened up my tablet yet to find oh. out what it is. Do you have to no, no, I no, I don't. I'm sorry. No, I don't. Yes. Oh yeah. All right. Uh, there's. Yeah, a daily a daily message. It's like a daily devotional. Yes. All right. There's a number of those. Uh, Zacharias also has one 
in the same way, and there's a few others. Um, and, and they're fine. Uh, they're fine. Uh, you know, I like, the, I have the word among us. Uh, Magnificat is another one, as I said. Uh, in fact, I have one also written by Pope ben- Benedict. Unfortunately, it takes a Philadelphia lawyer to understand what he's saying. <laughs> I try, but it's, I'm having a difficult time. Anyways, any other questions? Steve, did you have another comment? No, no, no. All right. Yes, ma'am. Well, uh, no, you got to keep in mind uh, who was Jesus talking to at the time that was written. You see, uh, there is the old story of the rich man and the poor man that Jesus uh, sees coming into the temple and he's saying to his disciples, now, see what the rich man did? When he came in, he made a big display of his contribution to the temple and wanted everybody to see that, hey, look at how great I am by making this contribution. Whereas the poor man came in and was uh, too embarrassed to get too close to the front, but stayed in the back and said, Lord, uh, forgive me for I am a sinner, or words to the, that effect. What he's saying in the gospel is, yes, don't make a big display out of your prayer time or your fasting or your giving of charity or alms. Okay? But it is not being contradictory. There's nothing wrong with, you know, the, the mere fact of the giving. It's just don't make a big display out of it. Okay? Uh, the ashes on the forehead is just a comment to the world. I am a sinner. And it is a sign of my mortality. And I have to think about that. That's what the ashes are for. Is to remind us that our time on earth is relatively short. And we have to make the best of it, not in accordance with what we want, but with what God wants of us or from us. <coughs> in other words, from ashes you came and from ashes you shall return. Yes, Joe? Yeah. In most cases, yes. The end of time is when you die as an individual because you can't do anything more about it. Okay? Uh, and that's what bothers me is why do some people get so upset about the end of the world? Because they, first of all, can't do anything about it. Secondly, the end of the world is when you die. Uh, so, 
That's what you should be concerned with. The condition of your soul at the time you die. Not at the end of the world. Because you may not be around for that. And if you were, it'll still be the end. Yes. Yeah. So. Okay. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, there are so much in these two chapters. Help us to see you as the God of love that holds out the carrot, you might say, as we would say today on other things, that your love is always there. But it is we who have to open our mind and our heart to accept it. Help us then to see what it is that you want us to see. Let us not be spiritually blind, but to open our mind and our heart and to hear what you want us to hear so that we aren't spiritually deaf. Give us the strength and the grace to set aside some of our preconceived notions and beliefs and understandings and re-examine what our relationship is with you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.